HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Greenhorns, this is Severin, just Greenhorns Radio. It is May. Wow, so beautiful. Golly Moses. Everybody everybody is noticing nature all around them having sex. I um am joined today on the phone by Sandra Ball, who is a dairy a dairy queen in the Hudson Valley and but originally from Texas. Hello, Sandra. Hi, Severin. How are you doing over there? How are your ladies? They are wonderful. I'm at the barn right now. Oh, good. So, so today we're going to talk about being a dairy a dairy lady, and um, and also maybe a little bit about your circuitous route into agriculture. Um, do you want to just start with a brief uh, introduction of yourself and in your place of origin, etc.? Sure. So I've been farming for three years now. Um, my background is in international affairs and public health, and so I've made my way into farming through an interest in the food aid system and how American agriculture affects global issues. And after working in Africa for some time, I came back looking to start farming myself, and I grew up in Texas, so I went back to Texas and started work on a vegetable farm and um, made my way up to the Hudson Valley, and I've worked on a couple of different farms, um, and now currently at a grass-fed dairy farm. Uh, it's funny how when you start in agriculture, your interests 
um, are really broad and you may want to do everything. I certainly did. Um, but now I've really found a passion in dairy farming. And so I'm trying to figure out how to make it in the dairy world. And particularly as someone who comes to this with um, some financial burdens and um, without a family history in farming. So really trying to make my own way in it. Um, but I'm in a good place right now. And so learning to appreciate that it's just takes a while to get there. So <laughs> here I am. So we were in, we were in the middle of talking about grass-fed uh, dairy. And I thought it would be important to do a little bit of background information for listeners who aren't totally uh, reading Grave Magazine and Stockman Grass Farmer every day. Um, some, right. of the, some of the different practices that are employed conventionally, organically, uh, grass-fed, seasonal, biodynamic. Give us a little rundown, please. Sure. Well, there's a range of different management um, systems that dairies can have from the super large sort of what you'd call factory farm, where most of the cows spend time indoors. Um, their feed consists largely of grain, um, and they're typically, you know, herd sizes of hundreds and possibly thousands. And then there's those that um, may be on pasture part of the year but also get grain-fed, so their diet is varied more. Um, and then there's the very, very small-scale dairies, um, that are primarily pasture-based, so they're not inside except for milking times. Um, and if you're doing a grass-fed dairy, um, that means that they're not getting any sort of grain. Um, some dairies do feed like a corn silage mix, which is a corn that's been chopped and fermented. Um, and there are various different opinions about what dairy cows should and shouldn't eat, and it's really... Um, based on the dairy farmer's um, knowledge and uh, interest on what they want to feed the cows. So not saying that one is better than the other, but um, the dairy that I'm on now, uh, we do exclusive grass. So that means that they're on pasture from May until November. We're grazing them, meaning we're moving them from one pasture um, to a new pasture on a daily basis. So they're always on fresh grass. And then during the winter, we're feeding them dry hay and also uh, baleage, which is um, hay that's uh, fermented um, and baled. So it's all um, still grass. So all grass that all helps. the time. And let's talk all about this, this fresh grass because it's not only about the cows get fresh grass every day. It also has to do with the impact of the animals on the land and the rest that the pasture gets between grazing. Do you want to elaborate a little bit um, just as you're watching and as you're moving cows, what are you seeing in the interaction of the animals uh, and plants? Right. I think 80% of dairy farming is about pasture management um, because that is where the food is for your cows and what you put into your cows you get out of your cows. So we're really looking to have dense, covered pasture, which means not a lot of bare ground. We want to see a lot of different types of grasses um, and very little weeds, although some weeds are okay. 
Um, and we're looking for a grazing height of the grass around 8 to 12 inches. So we don't want to graze them when grass is shorter than that um, because of the impact on the grass itself. Uh, it has a harder time regrowing. You're not accumulating um, additional organic matter from the roots, and the cows are sort of eating up parasites at that um, when their noses are that close to the ground. So we want to move them so that they're not grazing down grass lower than a height of uh, really eight inches is ideal. Um, and that gives the, t the grass time to give it rest and regrow. So our system, we have a 30-day rotation plan. So every day they get moved um, to a new patch of pasture and whether they're moved in the morning or at night depends on how evenly they've grazed that area. Um, and then at the end of the 30 days, they'll cycle back. And so um, we hope <laughs> and that that uh, lamb that we grazed 30 days ago is now regrown and at a height that's suitable for their um, best nutritional needs. Well, and this, of course, is the time of year when all the grass is growing it was a slow spring for, for pasture regrowth, but now everything's going gangbusters. And I was talking to Dorn yesterday in New Hampshire, and he said he's trying to just lightly graze everything he can get to. And, you know, he said, ideally, 200 trousers would show up to my farm, and I would move them really intensively through every field to, to minimally graze right now and force the plant to go into... Um, tillering, which is like side shoots, uh, and and essentially like stunt the original growth right off the top of the of the grass where the apical meristem is, and mm -hmm. you know just went on and on and then I realized my God, you know, I've been to a bunch of courses on pasture management. I read all these magazines. I read all these books. I'm like so excited about it, and I feel like I'm still such a newbie beginner in terms of the intensity of understanding that we have around our interaction with these grasses and how they act and how they how their roots are sheared off by the uh, cows eating the tops and then the sheared off roots are feeding the microbes in the soil and those microbes are of course building carbon and water retention capacity and for porosity um, in soil. If we just think about how many scientific man hours worth of complexity there is to apply to this interesting issue of pasture, I think um, a lot of you listeners, if you haven't decided on your major yet, consider pasture. Consider the pasture as a place for study. We we need a lot more. We need a lot more information here. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a lifetime pursuit. Um, it's part of the fun for me about dairying because I think I find it really fascinating. Um, but it's definitely this, you know, huge base of knowledge that those of us who didn't come from a farming background, it's, it amazes me um, what farmers who have done this for um, their whole life, the level of knowledge that they have um, that we have to now try and tap into. Um, it's just it's a huge issue, and particularly as we're going through a drought up here, you know, it changes the whole game of it. Our cows went out later. It's 
super dry and we don't know how well we'll, our pastures will regrow and what that looks like for um, managing our cows this year. So it's never a, it's never a static system. It's always um, really dynamic. And I mean, I think that's what's so appealing to me about it. But it's definitely, um, I think people ask me, you know, if you had your own dairy, how many cows would you have? And that's never the first question answer. It's always, well, how much land and how much pasture and what does that pasture look like? And for that one simple question, I can come up with a hundred off the top of my head. Um, but it's definitely, um, definitely such a skill to know about pasture management. So pasture management, we did. Um, let's talk about the job of dairy. Now, I don't want to give away too much, but Sandra is a very beautiful, like, pretty small person. And <laughs> you're carrying around these heavy buckets and, oh, gosh, so much work and getting up so early and bending over. So do you like milking? I love milking. It's so meditative almost. I really, really love it. Um, I'm de- my body's learning a new level of exhaustion, I think, like every farmer. Um, and so at 4.30 a.m. every day, is um, it's getting to be my new norm, um, which I think is a good thing. But, you know, it's like cows, it's like seeing good friends every day. And it's really... Um, wonderful to build that relationship with them. And I think particularly with, like, herds and flocks, you get to know the individuals in some way, but then you have the chance to sort of manage them as a whole. Um, and I think that is really interesting, and so it keeps me it keeps me going. And um, let's talk about the equipment that you guys use and your breed of cattle and kind of the... The routine, just like imagine that you're somebody does somebody can't see your barn, but you're leading them through it and showing them showing it off. Sure. So we have um, herd size of 21 Jersey cows, so they're fairly small cows. Um, they're a typical milk breed. Um, they produce a high content of butter fat but don't necessarily produce high quantities like a, like a Holstein, those um, iconic black and white cows. Um, so these are much smaller than that. Um, out of those 21, we have 16 that are in lactation, so 16 that we milk, and we milk twice a day at 5 a.m. and 4 p.m. And we have them out to pasture, and so every morning I go out, I um, call them in, and they're very slow animals. They have to be very patient <laughs> until they all get up and do their morning stretches and slowly walk to the barn. And then I open up. We have a double-door um, barn that leads into what we call a tie stall. So they enter the barn and walk down either side of it, just like a laneway. And then they turn in um, and step up onto a, a basically a concrete slab where we just um, tie their collar and they just stand there for the milking, eating hay in front of them. Um, so we run three to four milkers, um, so milking three to four cows 
um, at one time. And that whole process um, through the milking is about 40 minutes. Um, so it's pretty quick. Um, we, after that, we, our business model is to um, pasteurize our milk. Um, we bottle it in glass bottles and we sell it at the New York City Green Market. So um, as we're milking, it goes into a, a line and that line empties into a very large milk tank uh, called a bulk tank. And um, we, for one week, we probably make around 350 gallons of milk. Um, and what else can I tell you? Well, let's talk about the demand for that milk. And one thing I just am always astounded by, you know, right around grazing, there, there's just so much corn for cattle feed. And I always think, gosh, you know, here we are right next to New York City where supposedly there's an unlimited appetite for, you know, grass-fed beef and, and grass-fed milk and higher-value products from this land and yet to be insisted on growing this subsidized corn. Is there really right. um, is there really such a demand in New York City for this milk? Like, or am I am I putting too much um, um, positivity we, on, on my glasses? We make enough to sell all of our milk, but we have recently diversified our products from selling fluid milk to now we make yogurt um, because we found that we had um, leftover milk from the winter. For some reason, our market sort of dwindled over the winter, whether that's um, a reflection of just the population in New York City, I'm not sure. but um, So we have diversified our product a little bit, and it, yogurt also has a longer shelf life, so we could keep it a little bit longer in our own coolers before we had to sell it. Um, you know, milk and dairy sort of have this, has this like new fad with new fad diets with uh, no dairy and um, lactose intolerance and all of those health issues that people are pretty aware of. You know, we have to really market our our dairy as something different than store bought dairy. Um, and I want to say that that market. Um, that there is a, a higher demand for it, and I want to see small dairies thrive and for there to be more and more really good milk out on the market. But I do think it sort of remains to be seen whether or not um, consumers will embrace um, drinking more milk um, as a food and appreciate it for its benefits as a food. Um, I think, you know, more and more small dairies are looking towards um, the A2 genetics, which is uh, dairy cows have A1 and A2 proteins, and um, because of overbreeding in the conventional dairy herd, um, there's a lot of A1 protein out there, and there is some evidence that shows some sort of relationship between that sort of protein and um, being lactose intolerant and having health issues. And what they found is in the older dairy breeds that have a higher A2 protein ratio that you're not finding those same sort of health problems in populations. So that um, there could be a real advantage to having A2 protein milk. So 
you know, that message is starting to get out there. And with that and with the understanding of how the dairy industry works and how um, with economies of scale and the push towards really large ag in the dairy world where that has really put all of these family farms under business. If people know that story and recognize that there are newer, smaller dairies trying to make it as producing high-quality food and as a um, economically viable business and, they, and consumers will support that, I think we have a chance of filling a niche market, but it's still so, so small of a percentage in the dairy world that it's really hard to say whether or not, you know, there's just an endless demand for it. I don't, I don't know that that's true. I want it to be true, but I, I'm not sure we're there yet. So it sounds like more work to be done, more milk to be drunk in New York City. Oh, so everyone who's listening, you can get all that. Yes, drink more milk. Drink more milk. Note from farmers that you can meet. Now, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the Young Farmer Seed in the Hudson Valley and what mm-hmm. attracted you to that region. And, and you're one of many uh, young farmers and young farmers workers, the people in various states of uh, indenturement, sorry, and it's uh, apprenticeship and farm management and entrepreneur phase, startup phase, and plateauing and family phase. Um, tell, tell everybody about what's going on there in Valley. Why? Hudson Valley is a really special place to be a young and beginning farmer, I think. Um, I, As I said, I started out on an apprenticeship in Texas, and I just found it to be a really difficult place to start out. Um, and coming to the Hudson Valley was like a breath of fresh air because people are really excited about um, new farms and farming and farming on a reasonably small scale. And I think for me, this area has such a support system and such a network of support. Um, and that's really crucial to um, making your way into farming. Um, you know, given the capital cost of trying to start your own thing, that was never really an option for me. So I'm trying to find a different path, and I couldn't do it without the support of other farmers here. And um, it's something I really, really value, and I would suggest that anyone who is looking to get into farming really seek out um, the farming community and see what it's like and see um, if it feels like something where you can make a go of it um, because that, you know, um, my the farmer I work with, actually, he was speaking to the same thing and saying how, you know, if you can't call on your neighbor for anything you know, in a pinch, then you're never going to make it as a farmer around here. And it's just, it's so true. You have to be able to rely on those um, relationships. And um, it's something I've, you know, I've really come to appreciate and and to recognize that with farming, community is everything. Um, it's absolutely everything in, in trying to do this. So... Um, the Hudson Valley is a good place to be, but I know there are many, many other communities that uh, share these qualities. 
Um, but it's definitely worth considering when you're trying to get into farming is to choose wisely in locations. Choose wisely. So um, we're not allowed to ask you about your dream, your dream dairy, but uh, what are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about in general, or how are you thinking about the next phase? You're in year three. You work in different capacities. Um, how are you? How are you thinking about your next set of plans? And how do you how do you do that planning? Do you have a journal or mentor or class? Yeah, things are. You know, I'm still trying to sort of cobble together work so I can pay my bills and learn about farming um, until I get the necessary skills and experience under my belt to really um, move on to that next phase. Um, for me, in terms of um, farming skills, I really would like to learn about haymaking and learn more machinery, um, tractor skills and machinery repair. That's a big gap in my farm skills and farm experience. So that's what I'm looking towards next is my big goals to tackle is to learn more about that. Um, I, I think my sort of Five, three to five year goal is to be able to manage my own enterprise on an existing farm. I love the idea of um, having sort of a shared collaborative farm that whatever the ownership of the land looks like, there are multiple people doing their own business enterprises on that land. Um, I just think that if you're not coming into this with the ability to purchase your own land and the capital and you don't come from a farm family, I really think that's a viable model is to go in with other farmers um, who, you know, for me it would be, you know, a vegetable farmer or someone who wants to raise sheep or other types of livestock and for me to do a very small dairy and we all share the resources of the land and the large um, equipment and a shared market, but we all are able to manage our enterprises individually. So that's sort of my dream farm at the, as I envision it right now. Um, but I, I figure I have a couple of years to go before that actually manifests. Um, and in the meantime, I have more cow time ahead of me, and I want to learn more about haymaking. I feel like with dairies, the price of feed is just so expensive. I think it's the most responsible thing to do is to make your own feed and make enough to feed your own head of cattle. So um, that's my plan. Good plan, lady. Uh, I, I, hope, I hope that somebody on the enterprise farm makes beautiful jam so that you can have yogurt with jam on the bottom and I can come visit you and help out and then earn myself some of that jam, yogurt. That sounds yum, very yum, yum. Yum, yum, yum. Uh, <laughs> so I mentioned a few resources for folks who are thinking about getting into dairy. There's a new wonderful program. It's called the Grass-Based Dairy Apprenticeship Scheme out of Wisconsin. Uh, I'm sure if you're thinking about milk at all in your life, you've noticed Wisconsin has some major uh, mojo there. 
they were actually, interestingly, some of the first farmers to collectivize and do uh, bargaining together as a co-op with the railroads to get their dairy products moved to market on the East Coast. There was a lot of cultural hegemony there with German immigrants, which helped for the cooperation, but some pretty savvy moves made. Anyway, Organic Valley has a next generation program to support, to support farmers. I'm, I'm listing off my list, so Sandra, keep thinking about your list so we can fill them in together. Um, Organic Valley has uh, also grants program where there's research being done on organic farms, around, uh, organic dairy farms around the country to help with resiliency and feed costs and energy and water quality and happy cows, that kind of thing. Then there are jobs, dairy jobs listed. Um, I would say the first place to look is either regional sustainable ag organizations. So NOFA New York definitely has dairy jobs listed. Um, there's a magazine called Graze, which is for grazers, and it's on dairy and beef, and Stockman Grass Farmer, um, Holistic Management International, the Savory Institute. Um, there's another one. Sandra, feel free to type up. Um, I would, I'm not sure if you said this, but Cornell Cooperative Extension has a new um, small dairy program, um, and they have tons of really great resources on their website. Um, so they have business plans and um, sort of information for beginners um, up to those who are trying to start their own dairy. So that's a good resource base also. Um, Severin and I both know the people at Hawthorne Valley, which is a wonderful farm and institution up here, and they have a formal apprenticeship program for um, for dairy. Um, yes, and they were so generous. They gave us that milk cow, and you and I milked her together. Was that's that right. Point? We did. And I just saw her the other day, and she's doing very well. Happy cows, happy girls. Uh, <laughs> Well, let's see now. Are there any events coming up that you want to make people know about in Texas Valley? Um, I've got one coming up on June 22nd and 23rd. It's the Solstice Party at the Grange in Keysville, New York, which is in Adirondack. That is reachable by train. And you camp out and a brunch breakfast the next day and uh, talk by Eric Andrews of the Vermont Sale Freight Project, um, a historical tour with a horse nail, uh, not smelting, but what's it called, blacksmithing in the horse nail factory, historic horse nail black factory, and spoken word by Laura Brown Lavoy. We have big feast and uh, farm tours of six different young farmer farms, and there's, now on Sunday we have different activities. We have a hike up the mountain, um, tubing in, in the chasm, which is called, um, oh, Rumble, Oh, Sable Chasm, a tour of the um, Underground Railroad Museum. As many of you don't know this, but Lake Placid was the home of John Brown, the abolitionist. So that's 
very full weekend of events, and usually in Greenhorns we have one big summer party a year. Sandra actually helped pull off the first Essex one two years ago, and mm-hmm. had a congressman there. So um, let's fill up the Grange again, and if you need help with car shares, um, email Kara at the Greenhorns, and we'll help you up with other people who are filling up cars, or you can take the train. Oh, I talked too long. Anything else, Sandra? Um, I did just remember an event. We are having June 5th. We're doing an afternoon of a pasture walk here at the Grayson Angus Acres Farm in Ghent, New York, and that's hosted by Cornell. So if you just go to Cornell Cooperative Extension's website, um, you can contact um, the woman there that's organizing it. Just let her know you're coming, and it'll be an afternoon where we tour the main livestock farm and the dairy farm. So it should be... Really interesting, and we'd love to have you. That's June 5th. All right, June 5th, walk around. Um, thank you, Sandra. This one wonderful. I hope I see you very soon. Likewise. All right, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.